So good evening, everyone. It's been a long day, hasn't it? It's nothing like the first day of a retreat to seem a little endless. And I'm sure more than a few of you had the thought, and how many more? Because that's the nature of long retreats, this progression of days, all of which look pretty similar on the outside anyway. Schedule doesn't change very much. As we were reflecting last night in our opening about the history of this retreat, doing long retreats here at Spirit Rock, we opened this uh, facility in 1998 and did the first long retreat in 1999, so it's been 18 years. But the first one we did, we only did six weeks because we didn't think people would want to come. We didn't think we had the enough students who uh, could commit that much uh, to practice. But very quickly, this has become one of our... And we soon moved to doing two months where you can do one or two months. And it's very quickly become one of our most popular retreats with long waiting lists. So just, I like to begin just with that big picture of what we're doing here and this lineage that we're in of... 90 or so people who've come here every spring to sit for four or eight weeks. It's quite impressive, actually, that there are this many people dedicating their lives to this kind of practice. And just the cumulative impact of that, both in those individuals, but it has a ripple effect. And of course, in the same way at our sister center, Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, that many of us teach at and particularly teach the long retreats at, they've been doing this for 40 years with a three-month retreat where people sit either six weeks or three months. So there's a long tradition now in this country, relative, of course, to the history of this country. In the Buddhist tradition, this has been uh, a tradition for 2,500 years to go on long retreats. You may know that the, the, the tradition that we're rooted in is a Buddhist tradition, particularly the Theravada Buddhist tradition. It's a mo- monastic tradition. It was the monastics who uh, sustained the teachings and the practice for these 2,500 years. And they were people, monks and nuns, who dedicated their lives to practice, to meditation. And as traditionally, as a monastic, to do what's called the rains retreat. So from the time of the Buddha on, monastics took this time usually about three months, and went into seclusion, into more silence, into practice. So this is the tradition that we're sitting here as part of, our rains retreat. And given the weather in California, that may literally be the case this month. We'll see we've been blessed with some sunshine last few days, which we have not seen a lot of the last few months. We've had a huge amount of rain in California, which has been wonderful in many ways, uh, ending the drought in some areas, but also, of course, a lot of damage and flooding. But still, the rain is precious. But this sense of retreating, this urge to retreat, it's a common human urge. We are not alone in this wish to move into more seclusion, this urge to slow down, to, to come into silence, to reflect. We call it to retreat. That's what we're doing. It's a verb, to retreat. But perhaps you've thought of it this way. Certainly, probably some of the people you spoke to about what you were going to do 
For one reason, they couldn't understand why you would do it for a month or two. What? Silence? No. It seems impossible. But there can also be a sense that many people have about this kind of practice, that it's retreat as in escaping. Oh, you're just running away. And given the state of the world at the moment, that could be a little more understandable than usually. Um, There may be some sense of that. But that's not how we hold retreat. Retreat is not escaping. It's not running away. It's a wise withdrawal to allow us to actually regroup to, to, um, and emerge from retreat more balanced, more compassionate, and actually more connected, more integrated with ourselves, certainly, but inevitably we bring that out into the world, more engagement, more care, more compassion out of this sense of wisdom. So it's not retreat in the sense of avoidance or escape. It's actually a profound landing in your experience. And this is what we'll be talking about day in, day out here. And so the forms that we use are these old traditional forms of retreat, of coming together in silence to sit and walk, taking refuge in uh, the triple gem that Carol spoke about last night of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Buddha, the capacity to awaken, Dhamma, the teachings, and Sangha, this community that we create that's so tangible and powerful for us here. And community, you know, it's a great gift. It's also the place where the rub can be and we actually can learn and wake up in community uh, in the interactions, even if they're difficult, but it is a great support. But I always like to emphasize that we're not isolated here. Even as we do retreat from our external lives, our practice here has such a ripple effect right now. I often talk to the staff, you know, both informally and in programs, and so many of them said, oh, we're looking forward to the two-month retreat because it impacts everyone here on the land. Many of them will be coming and sitting with us, especially in the mornings at the morning sit, coming to the Dharma talks in the evening. They feel the power of your intention and your practice. And the fact that there's not a lot of coming and going in the retreat center, that so many people are here for an extended period of time, has a tangible effect on the life of the retreat center. So you'll just feel that, that they, they will be part of our retreat and loving the fact that you're here practicing. And then there'll be people who are thinking of coming, those who are coming to march, they're probably already sort of cognizant, oh, the retreat's already started. There are many people who often sit this retreat and couldn't come this year. People who might have wanted to be here but couldn't make it, they're also aware of our practice and thinking of us. And as we often say, cheering us on. All beings are cheering you on as you embark on this great adventure of four or eight weeks of practice. So we don't escape, as that uh, teacher at Mark Epstein says, wherever you go, there you are. You know, we bring, in some ways, the world with us. We certainly bring ourselves with us. We don't leave our lives and our problems, our difficulties, our relationships at the gate. But we have to form this wise relationship to, to that, to the world, to, to our stories, to our lives. 
And because that's what enables us to do this deep dive, and this is what long retreats are about, a deep dive into reality, into the truth of things, our own personal truths, the truths of the world in an impersonal way, but also the truths of the world in a relative way. This is how things are right now. This is how my heart feels. This is the the challenges. These are the challenges that, that I face. And so it's not an escape into some, you know, bliss field. May happen, but more often not, especially early days of a retreat, it's more what we call a dukkha field. Dukkha is a word, if you don't know it, you'll hear us use many times. It's usually translated as suffering, but the word has many meanings from the slightest rub of unsatisfactoriness to the deepest pain. And this is the truth of dukkha, of suffering, is the first noble truth that the Buddha taught. There is suffering in life. But he taught it not as a kind of depressing fact to make us curl up in the corner and cry, but actually as a doorway. Certainly a doorway to compassion as we open to the suffering in our own lives, the lives of others, but also a doorway to freedom. It's the first noble truth that leads to the third noble truth, the ending of suffering. So entwined with this opening to the difficulties is our capacity to actually deepen in the direct experience of contentment and happiness in ways we might not even imagine. They're not separate, they're actually inseparable. And Guy mentioned this book last night, we've both read uh, The Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And this is what Desmond Tutu says, discovering more joy does not, I'm sorry to say, save us from the inevitability of hardship and heartbreak. Heartbreak. In fact, we cry more easily, but we will laugh more easily too. Perhaps we are just more alive. Yet as we discover more joy, we can face suffering in a way that ennobles rather than embitters. This is, he's a closet Buddhist, he's a Catholic priest or whatever, but this is the Buddhist line. We can face suffering in a way that ennobles rather than embitters. We can have hardship without becoming hard. We have heartbreak without being broken. Such wise words and sense of possibility spoken out of his real and deep direct experience with suffering. So we begin this journey of retreat, of long retreat. We begin it individually, in the silence, and our turning inward to our own experience. But it's also a collective journey. Both are going to be happening. So individual, but not separate. Not separate here, not separate from the world. And I truly believe that what we are doing is and will impact our communities, and the world. You know, can't say exactly how, why, where, but as I said before, just so many people knowing that we're sitting here, their hearts resonate a little. There's some sense of inspiration from this. And as Margaret Mead says, never underestimate the power of a small group of people to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And we're seeing that in this energizing that's coming 
out of the results of the election. A lot of people really uh, energized in a way they haven't been for a long time. So this is also what we're part of here, not separate. And, you know, as I said, don't know if we'll change the entire world. That's a little bit of a vast uh, ambition. But we'll change our world. This is almost inevitable, to go through this process of long retreat. Shifts happen, shifts happen in ways we can't know, we can't imagine, but I know that they do. So we come to retreat with this commitment, intention, and it's easy to come with kind of fixed ideas about what might happen, some agenda solve life's problems, make this decision, fix this uh, challenging relationship. This is not so helpful for us as an intention. Sometimes, and we don't speak about this one so often, we can have the intention, some kind of deep insight, even maybe I'll get enlightened, maybe this is the one, you know, enlightenment or bust. Also not so helpful. Um, because that fixes or it limits the possibility of what might happen. And, you know, any, it's another form of grasping, obviously. It's another form of wanting. So we need to keep our intentions here very simple. You know, what do we do this for? And if you've done a number of retreats, you know, you'll, again, probably have this question arise at so, some point sooner or later. Why did I think this was a good idea? And, what is it that I'm actually cultivating here? Why am I doing this? And I always remember hearing Carol say just a little while ago, when we were talking about retreats ourselves and why do we keep doing them, and she just said, just to strengthen the habit of mindfulness, that's enough. And I thought that was wise advice, to keep it really simple. Simple but profound. Strengthen the habit of mindfulness and it will serve you in huge ways. Because mindfulness, as you know, is in these days, right? We're talking about it. It's like, you know, 2,600 years later, it's like the happening thing is mindfulness. And it's mindfulness in everything, right? Mindfulness and therapy and gardening and motorbike riding and flower arranging or whatever whatever it is. Um, But I really knew we'd made mainstream when it was the front cover of Parade magazine, you know, the one you get with a Sunday newspaper. Actually, we don't get it anymore for some reason, but it was the front page was the number one health booster, mindfulness. And, you know, the pictures of everyone who's doing, all the celebrities, the sports people, the actors, actors and actresses who are doing it. So we really know we've made it when it's made the, the cover of Parade. And it's right up there with kale and quinoa, you know, like the health booster that you just, you know, take some of that, take some of this, and then meditate for five minutes. You're good. Um, we know it's not that simple. But I think it's fabulous that more people are hearing about it. But there's more to mindfulness than a lot of those kind of articles put out but it's out there. I, uh, our dear friend and colleague, jo- Joseph Goldstein, is working a lot with uh, Dan Harris, who's the uh, weekend anchor or something on ABC National News. And he's written a book called 10% Happier. He said, I'm not going for, you know, the big stuff. If I just get 10%, that's amazing. 
So his book has been very successful. And I just heard recently that the farmer next door who runs the cows in the 400 acres next door, he's reading that book. And I thought, that's when you really know mindfulness is, is going everywhere. But what we're doing here is very different from that kind of mindfulness, that kind of, you know, just meditate for five minutes and your life will change mindfulness. Because I don't think that's possible. Doing this kind of meditation, as I said, does change your life, is possible to really shift. So I want to talk tonight about long retreat and some of the things we'll cultivate, what we need to perhaps work skillfully with. How do we dive into this journey that we're on? And we always say for the long retreats, they're a marathon, not a sprint. Don't start huffing and puffing and thinking you're going to get somewhere quickly. But really take your time to settle in here. Um, These qualities that we've already been talking about of relaxation, steadiness, continuity. You'll get sick of us hearing us, you'll get sick of hearing us say continuity, continuity of practice. That's what's important. Not effort, striving, pushing, holding on, but just this steadiness of effort in this relaxed, gentle way. This is what's going to support us in our practice. And I thought I'd also give us some advice from one of the best sources we have, if not the best source we have, the Buddha. So I'll be reading um, some from the Satipatthana Sutta, which is uh, the 10th Sutta. Sutta means discourse, discourse that the Buddha gave, generally they're by the Buddha. And they were collected um, about 500 years after the death of the Buddha. Up till that point, they'd been um, recorded orally, so just memorized and then shared like that and then finally written down until they've reached us um, more recently in English translations. And we're so blessed to have Bhikkhu Bodhi um, translating these new editions of all of the Uh, what they call Nikayas, uh, different collections of discourses. And so they're now much more readable than they used to be. And so this is the middle-length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya. Satipatthana Sutta is Sutta number 10. And Satipatthana is usually translated as foundations of mindfulness or establishing of mindfulness. It's the sutta that describes the practice that we do here at Spirit Rock. It's a very in-depth Um, very detailed description of how to develop meditation practice. And so the Buddha says, bhikkhus, and the Buddha uses this word bhikkhus, bhikkhu bodhi in a note says that a bhikkhu is any serious practitioner. So we all qualify, even though it's the male term, the female is bhikkhuni, but bhikkhu bodhi just generalizes it to practitioner says, bhikkhus, this is the direct path, <coughs> excuse me, path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana. Nibbana is the ultimate freedom, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. And then he lists the four, oh, well, I should say, He says this is the uh, direct way, the direct path, or the one-way path. He doesn't say this is the only way, so it's not a a limited or sort of 
um, uh, narrow idea of, you know, this is the only thing, but this is the only way this practice goes. It goes in this direction. And we do it for the surmounting of sorrow, lamentation, etc., for the ending of suffering, for discovering freedom. And then he says that we begin this practice with these um, four foundations, with these qualities. We should be ardent, fully aware, and mindful, fully aware or um, clearly comprehending. Ardent, this is what the Buddha says we should bring to this practice, this word is, um, it means to bring one's heart to, and it's the basis in uh, Pali, the word is atapi, it means to be on fire. That's what he's saying, to be, bring passion to this practice. And sometimes our practice can be, seem quite simple and even a little dry, you know, just breath, just walking, very simple, Where's the passion in that? Where's the emotional charge? What one finds as one deepens this connection, and one yogi said on one retreat, she found such joy in truly connecting with the moment. It has had a pleasure that was more profound than the the usual sensual pleasures of uh, the world. So just this connection... The, the, the leaning into with our heart's um, openness can actually bring great joy and you could say passion, that this is something we want to do. You wouldn't be here unless you really wanted to do this. And again, I know that you'll have struggles and difficulties and it'll drive you crazy at times, but something feels right and true about doing this. So ardency fully aware or clearly comprehending, means that we bring some sense of intelligence or wisdom or understanding to what's happening. It's not just rote. We're not just doing what we're told, following steps A, B, and C, but actually connecting in this deep way to our experience. So we're bringing a wise attention. And we'll talk more about this. It's, it's in some ways the heart of the practice bringing this kind of understanding. And then we're asked to be mindful. This is what we do here. We practice being mindful, mindfulness. And it seems like such a, in some ways, simple term, as I was saying, so many people are talking about it. We should know what it is. But um, I'm, I think Bonnie mentioned on the opening night, uh, I'm leading a program at the moment called the Advanced Practitioner Program. I couldn't come up with a a more interesting or evocative title, and everyone has complained about it, but that's what it's called. But it is a program that we do after our um, senior students program, which is a dedicated practitioner program. Um, we're actually doing a whole homework on what is mindfulness and giving some readings that really expand our understanding of what that is. For those of you that are in APP and missing it because of this retreat, that's what your home. You can study it in person. Uh, on this retreat. Um, The simple definition, the Pali word is sati, and the simple definition is just understanding what your experience is in the present moment. 
But the Pali, the, the derivation of the Pali sati, it has, a, has some relationship to memory and bringing um, uh, some kind of reflection into this experience that we're knowing. And we often say it's easy to be mindful, but it's hard to remember to be mindful. And there's been studies talk, uh, showing that being mindful actually increases the capacity to remember experiences. So it's intertwined with that. But the heart of it is, of course, is this present moment awareness, being in the moment, knowing what's happening. But that's a simple definition of mindfulness. What we'll be practicing here is samasati, which is right or wise mindfulness, meaning it's one of the path factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And if you're not familiar with Buddhism, one of the things you'll quickly find out is there are a lot of lists, and within each list there are usually sub-lists, so this is one of those cases. But samasati is wise mindfulness that has wisdom in it, and it supports and develops the other mindfulness factors, the other factors of the Eightfold Path. And again, we'll keep talking about that. So it broadens um, the mindfulness from just the knowing to this framework or this clear comprehension within which we practice, knowing what increases suffering and what helps us to let go and decrease suffering. Then it becomes samasati. And then the Buddha says that the bhikkhu, the practitioner, having put away, does this, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, basically craving and aversion, for the world. And I always think, well, if I could do that, I wouldn't need to practice, would I? I would have figured it out. But it's again giving us advice. We need to let go a little bit, if not a lot, of the entanglement. The world will be with us, but we again and again will have to choose do we enliven that entanglement and get lost in it, you know, really stir around in it, or do we keep letting go, putting aside? letting go the stories and the covetousness and grief. So our practice here is to land here and again and again be as fully here as we can. Again, we don't ignore or push away the emotions, the memories, the stories, what we bring with us, but we don't actively engage with it as best we can. And it's hard, given what's going on in the world. But this will serve us as we continue to practice. So the four foundations that the Buddha uh, lists in the Satipatthana are the first foundation is the body. And I'll talk a little more about that tonight. Second foundation of feeling tone, Vedana, the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that every experience has. Then we, uh, third foundation is exploring the, the contents or the quality of the mind, uh, whether it's greed or lust or delusion, whether it's concentrated or not. And then the dhammas, this uh, very um, uh, long and detailed look at basically how we create suffering, how to find freedom. Um, and we'll be talking about these as the retreat goes on. But I want to stay mainly with the first foundation, the body, and there's 14 different practices listed for the body. But why I wanted to start with this tonight is because the Buddha starts 
as we always do with the breath, as we did last night, as we did this morning, and as we'll do time and time again in our practice. And this is what the Buddha says. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating the body as a body? And this is a framing that he uses again and again, the body as a body, not my idea of a body, not what I want the body to be, but as the body is, the body as a body in this kind of simple, direct way, not conceptual. Here a bhikkhu, gone to the forest or to the root of the tree or to an empty hut or to Spirit Rock Meditation Center, sits down and having folded their legs other crosswise, sits their body erect and established mindfulness in front of them. Ever mindful they breathe in, mindful they breathe out. Breathing in long, they understand, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, they understand, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, they understand, I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, they understand, I breathe out short. They train thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. They, they train thus, I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. They train thus, I shall breathe in tranquilizing or calming the bodily formation. They train thus, I shall breathe out calming the bodily formation. And so this is the advice that the Buddha gives us, to start with our direct experience of the body and use the breath, know and understand the breath, to calm and tranquilize the body. This is so valuable for us to use or start the retreat with this simplicity of practice. Meditation is the work of the mind. What we're training here, what we're using, what we're cultivating is the mind. This is so important and so clear. But the mind is a slippery object. It changes, it's, it vacillates, it's, it's complex and confusing. And, and ultimately, we will want to train to be directly aware of the mind and the contents of mind. But it's hard to start there, no matter what your meditation experience is. So, so helpful to stabilize the attention with something physical. So as Guy was saying this morning, breath, body, sounds, these direct physical experiences that we can know. So that's uh, our recommendation. If that feels right to you, some of you may have a practice of working more directly with the mind, fine. But for many of us, to spend some days keeping the practice really simple, breath, body, sounds, creates a foundation of stability that we can then open up to more complex experiences like our thoughts, our moods, our emotions, our memories, our feelings. And then to the mind itself, we can know this mind itself and the quality of knowing, the awareness that's happening. But to deepen the capacity to be present, this simplicity is is really valuable. This calming, this soothing, because most of us, many of us are losing the ability to do that. 
our lives are so full and so fractured, so divided into little moments of distraction and where we're responding to every beep and every tinkle and whose phone is that and is it a message or an email and who do I need to get back to and what's the most urgent thing to do right now? And it's like it's a badge of honor. How, how are you? Oh, busy, crazy busy, so busy. And like if someone says, oh, you know, don't have much on. It's like, what's the matter with you? You know, aren't you important enough to be busy? Here, no. So what retreats offer us is this radical shift. Possibility of even giving up your phone. What happens in the body-mind when you contemplate that? A little tremor of what would that be like? Don't underestimate the power of doing that when we talk more about us. No email. To be immersed in nature, you have to be outdoors all the time here at Spirit Rock. Often outdoors at night or in the early morning, at times we're not often out. The simplicity of the schedule, of just the sitting and the walking. We often talk about retreat centers like this being timeless realms. As I said, where every day is pretty much the same. You know, you'll have an interview here or there that might ripple the waters a little, but apart from that, unless you keep track, you will not know what day it is. There's something wonderful about that in this day and age, uh, that you don't need to know. You just need to know when you have a practice meeting and show up, but apart from that, everything else is day in, day out. Your yogi meditation, your your, um, sitting and walking. So we surrender to this simplicity. This is so important. If you struggle against it, you go a little crazy because this is what we're offering, (laughs) sitting and walking over and over again. I love this quote from Suzuki Roshi, the Zen Zen master who founded San Francisco Zen Center. He says, in Zazen practice, and that's uh, the Zen kind of meditation, we say your mind should be concentrated on your breathing But the way to keep your mind on your breathing is to forget all about yourself and just to sit and feel your breathing. If you are concentrated on your breathing, you will forget yourself. And if you forget yourself, you will be concentrated on your breathing. I do not know which is first. But both are important and support each other. And actually, when I read that, picked that out to read tonight, it reminded me Many of you have heard this because I like to share uh, meditation cartoons. And so I was saying earlier with meditation getting more popular, of course, there are now more cartoons about meditation. And they used to be kind of weird um, and not understanding what really meditation was. But they're actually getting a little closer to some reality. So I like this one, which shows a couple watching television, sitting on the couch, and the television's blaring, obviously, some uh, advertisement for a show. And the words that the television is blaring, say, this week on the amazing race to enlightenment, so it's playing off, you know, the amazing race, there's some reality show where you go here and there. Can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy be be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? (laughs) So let's hope we don't have to eliminate you for relentless clinging to the self during this retreat. And then another one I saw just recently has two monks watching TV, a big flat screen TV. So 
Again, that's not a usual scenario, but you have to go with it. And one has the remote, he's saying, there's nothing on. And the other one says, great, let's watch that. <laughs> so guess what channel you're tuned to here? There's going to be a lot of nothing on in the kind of external sense. We know it doesn't mean nothing on internally. But this willingness to, to change the channel to actually be okay with the silence, the quiet, to be letting go. It's so important. And so our practice is to slow down and watch the nothing, watch the simplicity of breathing. But as I talk about breathing and even a little bit about concentration, it can be very tempting to grasp onto the breath. You know, our usual tendency, well, if a little is good, more is better, right? And she's talking about the breath getting concentrated. Well, then I should hang on to the breath for, you know, like a lifesaver for, for life's sake. And, and everything else is an annoyance and a distraction. The sounds in the hall, the pain in my knee. This is not wise mindfulness. This is not wise attention. We're not training here to be good breathers. We're not training to, to have a certain kind of breath or even any certain kind of experience. We're training the mind to know what's happening and we're using the breath to support that. So again, we'll be talking more about this, that this is not about hanging on to the breath and everything else is a, a problem or a distraction or you'll be with it, but get back to the breath. But just wisely in these first days, settling in this relaxed way with the breath and then opening up this is really important, opening up at some point to include all of experience. So we're not looking to have certain experiences, we're not looking necessarily to get deeply concentrated, though some people may choose that as a practice, and that's also fine. But really, this wise relationship with the breath and the body, sounds, these other um, uh, places that we use to stabilize the attention. So we're not doing it just to get somewhere, we're doing it to train the mind and heart. Chitta is the Pali word, and it means both mind and heart. So we use these techniques to stabilize and, and cultivate this continuity and deepen a sense of relaxation and contentment. Just the breath, just the body sitting, as we've been talking about. That is what then allows the mind to open, to deepen, to have insight, to connect. But we can't be with the breath to get there, right? This is the conundrum that we always have. It has to be this real letting go, this real um, integrity in the practice. Just being with this moment for this moment. We'll notice, and again, we'll probably talk about this, the leaning forward we might do, you know, wanting to get better, deeper, more, whatever. And this practice is so much more about letting go and resting than leaning forward and getting. And we have to start preferring stillness to distraction or simplicity to distraction, I might say. And this is a radical shift. As Joseph Goldstein says, distraction is the habit of the mind. We've trained our minds to be like this, right? By doing this that kind of behavior over and over again. Now this, now that, more of this, some of that. You know, if we, who was talking about if you're bored for a moment, pull out the phone. You know, there's always now something to do. 
even, you know, waiting for a train or something. There's stuff going on, Twitter and Facebook pinging away at you. Here we're going in the other direction. And we, so shifting our perspective, instead of this sort of outward uh, reaching distraction and kind of looking for affirmation from those hits, those uh, endorphins that get hit by these pings that happen, can we actually shift so there is some deep sense that well-being is to be found here, in this direct experience, with nothing taken away and nothing added. It's quite radical. So just preferring the simplicity. And so that is, as I said, what allows this clear seeing insight to develop. And this insight can happen on a personal level, our own patterns and memories and stories and hurts and wants and and loves and losses. It can happen in an impersonal way. And we'll talk more about this, um, the three characteristics that are the nature of reality, of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. It happens in an individual way, as I was talking about. We're often with our eyes closed in our own experience. But it also happens on a collective level. We help each other wake up. This is true. And we start to see on these different levels, from the minutiae of sensations to the universal, from the personal to the impersonal to the, you know, the, the vastest pictures, uh, sense of, of the universe, and these are all helpful, all ways we can wake up. And as we do that, we start to see places where there was delusion that caused suffering. One of the very challenges of delusion is that we don't know it's there. Its very nature is to confuse us. As we wake up in these ways, it can of, there can often be rub or pain or difficulty because we're seeing ways in which we actually perhaps cause harm through our confusion. So this is the collective waking up where we're not separate. We're waking up in this community, but we'll also be waking up even as we're here in our communities at home. And one of the delusions we wake up is the delusion of separateness to see the interconnectedness, how we affect each other, really literally, I'm not talking about in some metaphysical way, though that may also be true, but really literally. And so even as we focus a lot on ourselves, it's not to the exclusion of the other. We see how, you know, interactions in our yogi jobs, as we move around the center, we need to bring kindness and compassion to ourselves, but to everyone here over and over again. And so this kind of, we can have a delusion about our impact on others, that we don't impact others, we feel how they impact us, but we don't see how we impact them, or we project, you know, it's someone else's problem, that person's problem, or that community's problem, not my problem. This is one of the delusions that we can live in. We can have family delusions, social delusions, cultural delusions, again, about separateness and where the problems are, what causes suffering. We're all impacted. We're not separate. There's no, you know, barrier. There's no wall uh, between us. 
We're human beings who impact each other. Just as we are all to this day impacted by the civil rights movement back in the 60s, the ripple of that huge and so many benefits from that. We're now being impacted by the racism and the xenophobia that's really running rampant at the moment. Quite scary and many people directly impacted by that, but we're all impacted by it. And, you know, I just want to talk a bit about Spirit Rock as a place of refuge and a community that wants people to wake up, wants itself to wake up in these areas, wants to be as welcoming as possible to all who want to come and practice, but realizes the way that we're often not, with all the good intention in the world. And this is a a real waking up that we're doing as actively as we can, as proactively as we can by educating ourselves to ways that we, we not, might not be welcoming or accessible on the individual level, but certainly on the collective level, the institutional level, where just the way we do things, the way we've always done things, mightn't feel welcoming, mightn't be accessible for many people. So we need to wake up. And this can be really hard because, you know, oh, we're good people, we open-hearted, we want people to come. But just by the forms and the structures that we've created, it doesn't work for some people who would like to come here. So we're really trying to wake up to that. I'm in a group of teachers who are meeting regularly to talk about how do we wake up as teachers? How do we teach about this and, and, and bring the community into this work of waking up on all these levels of delusion and harm and suffering that are created around difference, around difference of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, ability, economic class. It, it's amazing once you start to look in these areas. There's so much suffering. And so it's... It's the really a, a place where there's a sense of passion around. Not just we want to do this, we have to do this. As Maya Angelou says, prejudice is a burden that confuses the past, threatens the future, and renders the present inaccessible. We want the present to be accessible because that's where we know we wake up. So it's really part of our practice is to include everything. Yes, individual practice, individual waking up, but as I keep saying, we're not separate. So we don't know what it is we might be waking up to here on retreat. On an individual level, on a community level here in our group, but as I say, not to underestimate how the world has impacted us and will impact the world and all the different levels we can wake up from. And it out of, out of the willingness to see through delusion. Not easy, but this is our task, to bring more wisdom. And as complex as it might seem looking at this, this bigger perspective, it's often more simpler also than we think. A friend has this quote on her refrigerator by William's James, William James Lamp- Lampton, and it's just so appropriate for retreat practice. Same old slippers, same old rice, same old glimpse of paradise. Same old slippers, 
same old rice, same old glimpse of paradise. In the quotidian, the ordinary, the everyday, there is this possibility to see clearly, to wake up that's so profound. So as I've said, it's not that you know, we're in this blank slate as we come on retreat. The stuff of our lives is here with us, the pain and the loss and the grief, the fear and the anger even. And it may come up, it probably will. It's one of the powerful things of retreat, whether it's from recent events or ancient events, old, from, from years ago. The world and our world, our lives, is here with us. But as I said at the beginning, this opening to suffering, our own, the community suffering, the collective suffering, is what tenderizes the heart, allows us to open with this natural response of compassion. So we don't have to be afraid of the suffering. The guy was talking last night about Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu saying those 25 years in prison were necessary to remove the dross and make him the man that he became. We don't have to be afraid. It can seem overwhelming at times, the suffering. It can be very hard here on retreat. But even as that kind of suffering, as we open to it, it can even seem to increase. Sometimes retreats seem to increase suffering. What's happening is another form of suffering is decreasing. The suffering of delusion, the suffering of denial, the suffering of separation, the suffering of us and them. And so we start to wake up in all these different ways. And the journey of meditation is one of integration, of understanding our inner world and the outer world. I've always loved this quote by a a Japanese nun from the, it was written in, uh, she lived in the the 10th century, Izumi Shikibu, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky. I knew myself completely, no part left out. And I love that. I knew myself completely, no part left out. It's one of the gifts of retreat, and especially retreat like this, is we meet ourselves, often for the first time, this intimacy, this, this connection, and when we bring into that compassion and wisdom, anything is possible. So this is the life of retreat, of long retreat. This is your home. Your new address is 5000 Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, Woodacre, California, 94973. No mail arriving, however. You actually don't get mail here. It has to go to the post office, but anyway. But this is your home. The settling in process can be rocky at times, but you're here with a field of support. This is your family. Hopefully a healthy, with a healthy dynamic, a supportive family if you, if you didn't have one. We as teachers are here to support you. The staff is here to support you. And this is what it will take. It will take all of us here to do this work and wake up together. James Baldwin said, there is, never time, there is never time in the future in which we will work out our salvation. The challenge is in the moment 
The time is always now. So true. I want to close with some words from someone just like you who sent in an application for this long retreat and all of us as teachers take turns reading the applications and I was really touched by what this one person wrote and asked if I could use it. It's not this retreat, it was from a a year or two ago. They said, I can feel myself becoming a happier, more mindful, kinder and more generous person as I continue to practice. I find that I can fall back into a very enlivened, radiating, happy, empty place that I first discovered on retreat. And I'm continually using it as a support to stay mindful and generous while dealing with the challenges of my day-to-day life. In addition to my sitting practice, I also have a practice of regular, brisk, mindful walking to help me stay connected to the sensations in my body. I feel from the inside that I am rewiring my neural networks through the practice. The impact of the whole body breathing and long retreats has been indescribable. Access to an ongoing resource of happiness that I'm using to heal and reshape my neurotic habits and patterns. As I continue to connect to that place inside me in my daily life, it supports me in becoming more skillful in my actions and becoming a better more generous, compassionate human being. So I wish that for you, not to grasp onto that, hold that, but just that sense that, yes, the practice can bring its gifts here in the retreat, but we do it to be more fully alive, more fully human, more fully connected, compassionate and energized in our communities, in our lives, in our relationships. So at the end of the evening discourses, we just like to sit for a moment in silence just to let the words settle. You don't need to shift your posture if you want to get more comfortable. You just sit quietly and let go of anything that wasn't helpful. If it was helpful, it'll stay with you. You don't need to hold on to it. Thank you for your attention. We now have about 35 minutes for walking meditation. It's often refreshing to be out in the cool night air, maybe even get a cup of tea. 
And then every evening we'll have the last sitting with some chanting. We'll gradually learn the chant together as we go through the retreat. And we'll have a shorter sitting. It's, it's scheduled for 40 minutes. It'll be much shorter than that. So we often know that the first day you're tired. So hopefully you have some energy to come back and sit and chant.